Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Today on The Breakdown, she is the founder of Voto Latino, a grassroots group aiming to educate Latinx voters. Maria Teresa Kumar has expressed concern about the lack of enthusiasm for Joe Biden among Latino voters. And we will get to all that in just a few minutes. But first, Marisa, we've got to talk about last night's VP debate, Kamala Harris going up against uh, Mike Pence, the actual VP. In a minute, we're going to be joined by a colleague of ours who was in Salt Lake City. She uh, actually covered the debate last night. Uh, we'll get to her in a second, but, uh, you know, let's uh, just chit-chat for a minute. We've, we've seen Kamala Harris for many years. We've covered her for many years. Uh, there was so much expectation riding on her and, you know, a lot, a lot at stake. I thought she did well. She was calm, smiled a lot, uh, delivered. You know, she really made her points on COVID-19, I thought, especially um, you know, and was as good as Pence was at not answering questions, you know, so that's a skill, too. You know, I think that she I would say broadly the debate was kind of a draw. I don't think it's going to move the needle. I mean, let's face it. VP debates generally don't unless someone really steps in it. Um, you know, I talked I was talking to some folks who have been around Kamala for a long time who said that Mike Pence is probably the most skilled debater she's ever faced. And and he was. I mean, they were both really on their game. It's hard to believe that was only last night, Scott, because there's been about 3,000 news cycles since then with our, our fearless president. Um, but, you know, it... I think Kamala did what she needed to do there, right? She came out, as you said, I think she really didn't want to be that same sort of prosecutorial voice that we've seen in the Senate Judiciary Committee. This is a different role. She's really trying, you know, to bring this home for Biden. And and I think that um, she did well and, and sometimes almost pulled some punches. You know, I thought she might have gone after him even harder on COVID, although I will say that was a very strong, the first strong 30 open. minutes or so yeah. of the debate yeah. for her were very uh, strong. Absolutely. Well, let's introduce a reporter who covered the debate last night, Sonia Hudson. You may remember that name. She's a KQED alum. She's now covering politics for KUER in Salt Lake City. Sonia, welcome. Thanks for having me. Yes. Welcome to the breakdown. So what was it like to be there last night? 
it was kind of strange, honestly. You know, there's been so much hype about this debate being in Salt Lake City. This is the first time we've had a presidential or vice presidential debate in Utah. Um, but it was really scaled down, as you might imagine. Um, there really weren't a whole lot of people there. Um, the press tent that I was in was less than half full. Mm. Um, hardly any reporters were let into the debate hall. And yeah, it was just sort of empty. I mean, there were a, a few, a handful of guests and the staff and volunteers, but that was kind of it. So, I mean, obviously, as you said, this is something that Utah had really been anticipating for a long time um, with COVID and all the news out of the White House over the last week. It was even smaller than maybe it would have been. But I mean, what's your sense in terms of how closely Utahans, is that how you say it? Like Utahans, yeah. (laughs) We're following this and and what the vibe is. I know Salt Lake is a more blue uh, city, but it is a pretty red state, correct? Yeah, so I like to say that Salt Lake City is a little blue dot in a sea of red. Um, it's it's very left leaning. The rest of the state is very conservative. But there's a sense among you know both conservatives and liberals, uh, Democrats and Republicans here that because Utah is so reliably conservative, we've gone for uh, Republican presidential candidates in every election since the 1960s. Just to give you a wow. a sense of uh, of how conservative we are, and so you know both candidates tend to kind of overlook us as a given that, you know, Mm. we know which way the state's going to go. And so um, people on all sides of the political spectrum were really excited to have uh, the national spotlight on Utah for a change. Your governor was there last night. I don't know if, I mean, one of your senators is now quarantining, Mike Lee, because he was sort of a super spreader at that event at the Rose Garden. (laughs) Not to put Uh, too fine a point on it. (laughs) Well, I mean, I saw the pictures. Uh, Talk about that. I mean, what has the reaction been there about him testing positive? And, you know, a lot of photos of him hugging people without masks. I mean, how how are, you know, folks there reacting? Um, I think people are generally more focused on what's been going on in this state, honestly. Um, Kind of the tune of a lot of Utah Republicans is to say, you know, we support the White House. Obviously, there's been a lot of well wishes that have, you know, been outpoured for the president and for Senator Lee. I think a lot of a lot of Republicans here tend to say, yes, I support the president. I wish him well. Uh, but, you know, they're not they don't like to dive into the the policies uh, of the White House and things that are going on politically, because uh, President Trump, while, you know, Utah is a really conservative state, is not all that popular here. He only got 45 percent of the vote in 2016, which is extraordinarily low for a Republican candidate here. Well, that's a great segue to the other uh, senator we want to ask you about, which is Mitt Romney, who you know, lately, I think has been kind of shorn up on the Republican side of things a little bit more, but did, you know, vote for impeachment. He has been um, a target of the president. I mean, it, it, it seems like he, he and Mike Lee are such different folks. Like, what's your sense about kind of who represents Utah better or more? Do they just have different constituencies? I think that they definitely have very different constituencies, even though they both do represent the whole state as senators. Um, Mike Lee definitely represents the faction of Utah Republicans that are very pro-Trump, uh, although Mike Lee wasn't an, an early, early on, he was a little critical of the president, but has since come around and um, is a really strong supporter of him. And then Mitt Romney represents, you know, we were talking earlier about, you know, just 45% of people voted for President Trump in 2016. And so I think Mitt Romney represents the people that are really conservative, really Republican, but have some issues with Donald Trump's character and um, 
and, and the way that he conducts himself in the White House. And so I think he they both definitely represent very different factions of Utah Republicans. Romney, of course, I think was one of the only, if not the only Republican in the Senate who voted for one of the articles of impeachment. Um, did he get any blowback for that in Utah or do they like the fact that he's a little independent? Uh, he definitely got some blowback. He actually, uh, the the night after he made that vote, boarded a red eye fly back, red eye flight back to Utah, and met with the Republican legislative leadership here to kind of uh, smooth things over with them, as it were. And so, you know, the Utah Republican Party came out and, and condemned that vote. Um, and I think that Mitt Romney is very interesting because he is disliked by both Republicans and Democrats, depending on what he's doing that day. <laughs> so, for example, when, you know, when he voted for one of the articles of impeachment, Democrats were like, oh, yes, we love you, Mitt Romney. <laughs> and then when he, you know, came out with his announcement that he wanted to move forward with the Supreme Court nomination of Amy Coney Barrett, um, you know, Democrats were like, how dare you? And yeah. so kind of a, a one night political stand, a political one night stand, I'd say. <laughs> Sonia Hudson, it was so nice to see you in your yes. yellow flames there on Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> take care, and uh, thanks so much. Hope to have you on the show again. Great. Thanks for having me. All right. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to be joined by Maria Teresa Kumar with Voto Latino. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer, here as always with Marisa Lagos. And our guest today knows a whole lot about the hugely important Latino voting bloc. Maria Teresa Kumar is the founding president and CEO of Voto Latino. That's a grassroots political organization. They target Latinx millennials, encouraging them to get engaged and vote. Maria Teresa Kumar, welcome to Political Breakdown. Good to have you. Great to be here, Scott. Thanks, Marisa. <laughs> I, I just want to start by asking you a quick question about the VP debate last night. What, what did you think was missing, you know, from where you sit as someone who is really in touch with uh, Latinx issues? I was personally, I was surprised immigration never came up. And that's, I mean, I think that that was one of the most glaring, not just immigration, but even how disproportionately COVID has impacted Latino and African-American communities. Uh, when we say that COVID has been hard for us, it is we not all of us have had to uniformly sacrifice the same. And it has disproportionately impacted 
uh, African-Americans and Latinos. And sadly, Latinos are the leaders, not only of the individuals contacting COVID, but because we live in multi-generational households, completely in some parts decimated. Uh, when we hear that children cannot get infected, our children are dying. And that is what people are not discussing. And so I think that it was an opportunity to really lay down the gauntlet on who does the democratic progressive base need to talk to. The only way they're going to win by large margins is engaging African-Americans, Latinos, and youth. And that is disproportionately what I would say was missing. Immigration was missing the right before the debate, the day before we have on record through the New York Times that Jeff Session and Ronstein both said that the best way to make a deterrence was to separate children. When asked how old, they didn't care. We have children right now that are in cribs that are separated from their families. And we know that there's a psychological effect of not having human contact. I mean, the fact that we often talk about the sins of our past, where in our past we have separated children from families. We're, there's sins of the present being committed and we are in direct violation of the United Nations rights of children. And none of that came up. And that is sometimes what we need is to discuss the humanity that is at stake because we have somehow become callous to a whole group of people who are essential workers, who are making sure that we can shelter in place. And um, there's, there seems to be no acknowledgement of the true heroism that they are doing, oftentimes with many less choices that we have. I mean, it's kind of insane that that, that issue, the, the kids in cages at the border, hasn't even really bubbled up during this. I mean, I know there's so much going on. Um, well, we want to get into some of the work you're doing and why you're doing it. But just to back up a second, um, so our listeners understand a little bit about you. You were born in Colombia. You grew up in Sonoma, north of San Francisco. Yeah. <laughs> and you went on to get your bachelor's, your master's. I believe you might have been the first in your family um, mm -hmm. to do that. You worked in politics and then briefly in the corporate world, and then in your mm -hmm. mid-20s, something happened that really made you reevaluate your career. Can you talk about what that was and how did you come to found this group? Right, so I grew up in Sonoma, and I have to tell you that I was in, I'm gonna completely date myself, I was in New York City on September 11th. And I was in the quarter arf part. I was actually supposed to take, I mean, to really, I was gonna take a TWA flight out of there, right? <laughs> TWA is no longer existent. <laughs> Um, and it took me hours to try to get a uh, call into my mom, who was living in Kenwood at the time, and uh, hours to get in touch with my dad, uh, who's living in Sonoma. We just couldn't because the phone lines were down, right? And mm -hmm. when I was finally able to get a hold of them just to let them know that I was okay, we just started asking, you know, the general questions were like, how's everyone at home? And it was the same thing that I had heard before. And Sonoma is a really beautiful area, but Sonoma is also one of the most segregated communities in California. And, and there's a lot Sonoma, of Latinos there, right? I mean, right, you know. right, yeah, yeah. So my family, you know, people always talk and ooh and ah about Sonoma. And I was like, you know, Sonoma, my family made Sonoma beautiful. They're the ones that are the essential workers. They're the ones that pick the, pick the grapes. They're the ones that take care of our grandchildren and our parents and our janitors and our teachers. And, and quite frankly, when I was growing up, if you look at the the difference between around gender lines, I didn't, and at this at this time, I didn't even have language for institutional racism, right? And I was mm -hmm. 28 at the time. I had already gone to the Kennedy School of Government. I had already worked in Congress and I didn't know this terminology, right? But I just knew something was off. To make a long story short, that September 11th, I had a conversation with my mom and then she just let me know that, my, that not everybody was doing okay. 
uh, and that there was, and it was at that moment that I realized that I had to be very honest with myself of like so many people, it was a defining moment of how did I want to spend my time? And that, yeah. And that's when I realized that I wanted to leave corporate America and do something in the Latino community. That and that's how I felt like I and, forward. <laughs> yeah. Pardon me. And you vote, you started Voto Latino and I think you've funded it for a couple of years on your credit card, which I'm sure you <laughs> don't, don't recommend. Ever do that. Don't ever <laughs> no, do that. No, no, but, no. Um, but wanna... I didn't have access to capital, right? I didn't right. know how things work. Right. It's like, Ooh. and I didn't, I mean, luckily I had a nice network that helped a lot, but yes. Yeah, you needed to go fund me page is what you needed. But uh, <laughs> let me just ask you before we go too far, because we have this conversation in our newsroom from time to time about words, you know, and Latino, Latinx, Hispanic. I mean, how do you, mm -hmm. your group is called Voto Latino, not Latinx, mm -hmm. but like, how mm -hmm. do you, how do you think about those words and when you use which ones? Yeah. So at Voto Latino, it was, we basically use it interchangeably, Latinx and, and Latino. Uh, and it's one is to socialize people to the, 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 there's a real shift happening with Latinx and Latinx, I think is the most inclusive, most beautiful one because it recognizes a non-binary individuals, right? So it, it is a total inclusivity. And I have to plug a friend of mine who just wrote a book specifically on this. Her name is Paola Ramos. Uh, and she just wrote a book called Finding Latinx in Search of the Voices Redefining Latino Identity. So, uh, and I just got in the mail today, but, but yes. it, it speaks to this, right? It's like, yeah. it speaks, she goes around, she goes across the country and she talks to transgender Latinos. She talks to indigenous Latinos. She talk, and this is a whole inclusive notion where we are finally labeling, labeling ourselves versus being labeled, right? Hispanic is the one that really kind of uh, ruffles it's, a lot of feathers. It's outdated it was kind a, of, right? Well, it was, it was a corporate concept. And it was then, and it was brought in by Republicans, and it also recognizes Spaniards, but didn't recognize indigenous Afro Afro roots in in Latin America. And it was also the term that is still used in the census, but it was also because most folks don't realize Latinos were not caught, were not we were not actually quantified in the census until 1980. Wow. And so this is so all of this is a fast clip of identity uh, kind of on steroids. So, <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk about the work you're doing. Um, you know, I feel like every time in my lifetime we have a presidential election or a big thing on the ballot here in California and nationally, you talk about the sleeping giant that is the Latino community. And I, but I guess to start with, like, this is not a monolith, though, right? So can you talk about the work you guys are doing and when you think about this broad community that comes from all different parts of the world, like how mm -hmm. do you, um, what, what are you guys trying to do to, to engage these folks given how diverse it is? So I think our name says it all, Voto Latino, right? We are, if you were to ask anybody which leanings of what part of the Latin American map we, we hail from, no one could tell you. Uh, and that's a good thing. And that is because first of all, Voto Latino, we have, people from all stripes and different generations of Latinos within our group. Uh, and, but more importantly, we recognize that every single message we've done, and this is from the very beginning, from our onset, we would rely and still do on celebrity voices, right? So a PSA that we would play in New Mexico would never play in, in Miami, 
Mm-hmm. We would just use a different artist because we recognize that there's just a different tendencies, right? Like if I played Los Tigres del Norte, which is a Norteño music from the Southwest in Miami, I would have lost my whole audience and vice versa, right? So it's being this, it's being nuanced from the beginning and being authentic from the beginning. And imagine Latinos are very much like Italians. When Italians moved here, they weren't Italians, they were Sicilians, right? Mm-hmm. And they were Romans and they were, and that is what the Latino community in America has become. What has solidified, though, our common identity, for the most part, I would say Miami and Florida is a very different beast, that there's 60 million of us living in this country. And the moment we step outside, that different people don't identify those nuances and differences, right? If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. And our guest today is Maria Teresa Kumar with Voto Latino. And, you know, to your point that you just made about the diversity, I mean, a few weeks ago, uh, Joe Biden got in some hot water. He said, uh, and I'm quoting here, unlike the African-American community, with notable exceptions, the Latino community is an incredibly diverse community. What did you make of that comment? I mean, in some ways, it is an echo of what you just said. On the other hand, a lot of people heard that as being a little tone deaf and maybe disrespectful. Well, I think they felt that it was disrespectful to the African-American right. community that is also very diverse, right? Uh, the, the, interest, the thing about the Latino community, just, you know, 24% of us identify as Afro-Caribbean, Afro, Afro-Latino Caribbean, right? I am I, part of that demographic. We didn't have this kind of conversation wokeness until probably five years ago, right? Like we were just like, just trying to differentiate that we were Latino. And so we've got made great strides with that. But I think that if, you know, if what we complain about with Joe Biden, that his biggest gaffe was not recognizing the beautiful nuances of the African-American community in contrast to what we have today, I'll live with that. We can educate him on the differences. But right now what we have with the White House is someone that is not only curious, he's not only not curious of the different shades of Americans, he's very much telegraphed what he expects an American to look like. And that in a country where we have 135 million of us strong of different of communities of color, we're 40% of the population, that should be a wake up call for all of us that what this president at the White House is trying to do is a clear present danger because he's trying to divide us on race and differences while he pilfers our coffers, right? I mean, that is that is clear. And so we just cannot take that bait. So let's talk about then why there is an enthusiasm gap for Joe Biden and Democrats. I mean, you guys had some polls out this year showing that less than 60 percent of Latinos plan to vote at all, I guess eligible Latinos, we should say. Um, I think I saw somewhere that 49% of registered Latino voters never get a contact from a candidate. I mean, yep. is it about outreach? Um, I know you focus a lot on younger voters and the sort of bridge between their families and the voting mm-hmm. booth. Um, but what what is it that you have been finding about, given everything you just laid out about Trump, like wh- why would this be a heavy lift for Dems? Right. So... What Trump has done from the beginning is that he never stopped talking to his audience, including the Latinx community. There's tons of misinformation right now and disinformation in Florida was is because he's feeding it on their feeds all the time. And so what we've done at Voto Latino is that we actually created a completely different war chest this year. Uh, we endorsed Joe Biden for the very first time because we saw the we, we saw the softness of it. Right. And 
one of the biggest challenges that most most candidates have this year is that they can't go into communities and make those changes, right? It's not, it's a different type of communications. And mm. so we set out to register half a million voters. Uh, and we have, I'm happy to tell you, we have now, as of this morning, we've registered 524,832. Wow. Every vote makes a difference. That's why I, <laughs> yeah. you know, I applaud that. Um, but then we were only gonna, we were, we were planning on mobilizing 1.5 million individuals of low propensity voters. Uh, and we came back and because of COVID and all of that, we're now going to mobilize 3.7 million Latino voters. Well, wow, that's a huge difference. Battle- yes, yeah, six in key battleground states. I will be honest, I want the man at the White House to know our name. Uh, he started his campaign that was the most misogynistic, xenophobic modern day campaign. And, and the American people, my patriot friends, rewarded him with the White House. Nothing could hurt more in the Latino community. We know, of it's, course, that I'm sorry. Go ahead. Finish the thought if you want. No, go ahead. You're okay. <laughs> we know that there are big, huge Latino populations in places like Texas and California, yeah. Nevada, Arizona. But what about places like North Carolina and Georgia? I mean, Michigan. Are those, we are Michigan, everywhere. Are the, yeah. That mm-hmm. is what's so exciting, right? Like, so the gutting of the Voting Rights Act was basically from Shelby County against Eric Holder. And Eric hates when I mention his name, but it was his case. So. Shelby County had had, uh, since the census, had had an increase of over 80% in the Latino population. Every single jurisdiction that followed that you mentioned included North Carolina, Georgia. They all basically also tried to prevent the voting booth. Why? Because they saw in the tea leaves that while the Latino population was the second largest, we were going to age in to be able to vote as the second largest voting bloc today, 2020. So all of these restrictions on voting were very much in preparation for a new young population of people aging in. Texas is responsible for 25% of all young Latino voters, 2.5 million. In Georgia, you mentioned Georgia, we were we set out to register 26,000 voters in Georgia. We've registered 34,967. Wow because people are paying attention and they're angry. And for the very first time, we actually have the resources to do it. You know, we set out to raise $15 million. Our funders, because we do everything digitally, everything's very metrics driven. I mean, you know, I I grew up in Sonoma uh, on the the back end of Silicon Valley. And so the way we've done everything is constantly iterate different iterations and stuff. We've raised $34 million for the effort. There's never been a campaign this large for Latino community. And it's concentrated in six states. And are you doing Joe Biden's job for him? Like, I mean, because because what we hear from your group and others, we talked to Stephanie Valencia on the program of Equis Labs earlier this year, is that, you know, Democrats aren't really doing that great of a job communicating. And so, I mean, how do you what's your how do you how are you feeling going into these last weeks before the election? We can discuss how to better improve campaigns, but we need to have a very clear uh understanding that we cannot sustain as a community or as a country or as a democracy four more years of what we have right now. You mentioned earlier, Senator Mike Lee. Senator Mike Lee has been tweeting that we are not a democracy. He, this is what he was saying today. He was tweeting that the fact that, that I'm democracy not even sure what is just he means. an aspiration. No, no, we are a democracy, right? Like this is, this is pure nonsense. My family fled Columbia and under the guise of democracy, but it was the judiciary system, the judges, and the press that kept it from a completely failed democracy. 
that is that is what it's at stake. And I don't and no one has more skin in the game than all the immigrants who fled broken places to come build here. Right. Like that's the. You know, uh, there are uh, there have been comments, of course, about the impact of having Kamala Harris on the ticket. She's helped mm -hmm. a lot with fundraising. She's added some excitement. We saw her in action last night at the VP debate. What how does how did the Latinx community, do you think, respond to her being chosen? So full disclosure, I've known Kamala from when she was a DA. So uh, us too. She <laughs> <laughs> well, she 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 advised us when we were building Voto Latino, uh, and she is someone that I think as is a personal friend. But more importantly, when we did all our polling, when we were trying to figure out this, the polling that you were referring to, Marisa, was that is polling that we did back in June. So June to today is like five years in COVID right. speed, right? So it's just like, ah. but. Um, <clears throat> But when we put her toe to toe to others, she was leading. And when he was announced, when she he announced her, it went through the roof. And we saw it in our fundraising. We saw it in the people who wanted to volunteer in our voter registration. And it was because not only that she was a woman of color, what's really resonating with the Latino community is that she's the daughter of our parents' aspiration. Interesting. You have a president who's making them un-American, and then she reminded them that their sacrifices was so that their kids could be here. Like it was a reminder of why they're they're living through such tragedy in many cases, uh, and that I think uh, speaks a lot to why she's doing well. And I think that what was interesting because what she needed to do yesterday was not convince women of color; she needed to go back and convince suburban white women that she and Vice President Biden can take care of her families. That was that whole debate. It wasn't about switching white men. No offense, Scott. It was all about how can she bring urban moms back? And right. I think she did that and she did it well. All right. We have about a minute left, Maria. Can you just tell me, I mean, what is, how, how are you trying to close the deal with the voters you're talking to in the next couple of weeks? So historically, we've been very good at it. 79% of the people we register vote. Uh, I always say that Voto Latino goes from your cool, older, savvy, older sister to the your wonderful, loving, nagging aunt. <laughs> and so we close the deal because we will not give up. Uh, but if your listeners want to volunteer, they can go ahead and text volunteer to 73179. We are now have trained our volunteers and they have helped us to contact 1.5 million voters already. Uh, around vote by mail, about early voting. It's going to take all of us. People contort themselves and say, what can I do this moment? Uh, you guys are doing it, right? You guys are speaking truth. I said, whatever your superpower hero is, uh, put on your cape and lean into that. Uh, and yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, Maria Teresa Kumar, we are out of time. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Stay well. You too. Be well. Thank you so much. Thanks, All right. Maria. That's it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. And don't forget, you can go to kqed.org slash elections. kqed.org slash elections to find our election coverage, including our voter guide. It's a good one. Check it out. <laughs> our producer is Guy Marzarati. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Tobin Lindsay, Vinnie Tong, Erica Aguilar, and Jonathan Blakely. I'm Marisa Lagos. You can follow me on Twitter at MLagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. Thanks for listening.
Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.